today on Fuzzy Logic. We're talking mass migrations. We're talking Indigenous populations. We're talking about whale accents and seals singing. We're talking about ancient drinking habits too. All that and more coming up for your science on a Sunday right here on Fuzzy Logic. Morning, Canberra, and welcome to Fuzzy Logic, your science on a Sunday. My name is Broderick, and it's a pleasure to be with you this morning as we dive into the world of science. Thanks very much to Irish Voice for the show beforehand. And uh, now we're going to make that transition from the world of Ireland to the world of science. And I'm very pleased to be here with you while we do that. Such a fantastic day out there here in Canberra. It's one of those beautiful winter days. It's absolutely freezing cold, but there's wonderful sun, so it kind of feels nice when you're out there. It uh, It is lovely indeed. Uh, and I'm look very pleased to be here with you in the studio as we... Um, jump into the world of science and I've uh, been looking at uh, the science research that's been coming out this week and what's been happening. I've got some great stories to tell, Uh, some interesting ones around the animal kingdom and animal accents and singing, but I thought first I'd start in the world of people and look at our first Australians and uh, an interesting study that's come out just recently published by researchers from Flinders University and the University of Adelaide, both down in South Australia, and James Cook University across in Townsville. And it's looked at the migration of the first Australians arriving here and how it all came about. Because uh, what they these researchers have found is that it took more than a 1,000 people to form a viable population over here. But uh, this migration at the time was nothing accidental and was a planned migration by the ancestors of the Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander and Melanesian peoples as they first made it to Australia. And it was surprisingly organised and technologically advanced as they actually came over here to start their new life. Now, the continent of Australia that uh, our first arrivals encountered wasn't actually the Australia as we know it today. It was a place called Sahul, S-A-H-U-L. Sahul was uh, a bigger continent than just Australia. In fact, it was made up of New Guinea, mainland Australia and Tasmania merged together before they split apart. And this mega continent existed from before the time the first people arrived, right up until about 8,000 to 10,000 years ago. So that's quite interesting to think about when we think about our Indigenous population and we know that uh, dates back at least 50,000 years. Um, So they were coming across to us when we were joined to New Guinea and Tasmania. Uh, now, when so yeah, that's right. When we're talking about when people come over here, we are talking about coming over to Sahul, uh, not Australia as such. 
So there's a few things that we can uh, determine and that these researchers have looked at in their research. Um, we know ultimately that people did come to Australia through the islands to the northwest. Uh, and in fact, many Aboriginal communities across northern Australia have a strong oral history of ancestral beings arriving from the north. And so this is that story, that history that we can tell, that we can learn from. The other things that we can look indirectly at uh, where people most likely entered Zahul from the island chains that are now Indonesia and Timor-Leste and how many people were needed to enter Sahul to survive the rigours of this new environment. And from uh, this new study, the researchers actually developed demographic models, which are basically uh, mathematical simulations to work out which island hopping route these ancient people most likely took. And uh, it turns out that the northern route connecting the current day islands of Mangali, Buru and Saram into Bird's Head, uh, which is West Papua, would probably have been easier to navigate than the southern route from Alor to Timor and the now drowned Sahul Shelf off uh, the modern day Kimberley, so up the top northwest corner of Western Australia there. So while the southern route uh, so while that route is less likely, it still would have been possible, uh, but they think it's probably more likely that they came through that northern route uh, around West Papua into Australia there. And so the researchers actually extended these uh, demographic models, the maths, to work out how many people would have had to have arrived to survive in this new continent. And... Uh, estimated the number of people that the landscape could support as well. And so they were applying, you know, a combination of factors in there. They were looking at fertility, longevity and survival data from hunter-gatherer societies around the globe, especially around that time. They also looked at hindcasts. Hindcasts was a new word to me, but uh, it's basically the opposite of forecasts. You know, for in front, behind, looking backwards. So looking at past climactic conditions from general circulation models. So very much the, the sort of data that we use to forecast future climate changes now. They looked back to see what was happening there. And uh, the scientists also used principles of population ecology that have been well established for a while. And from these simulations, uh, they found that at least 1,300 people likely arrived in a single migration event to Sahul, uh, regardless of the route taken, most likely the northern route, potentially that southern route through the Kimberley, but uh, any fewer than 1,300 people, and they probably wouldn't have survived for exactly the same reasons that, you know, it's unlikely an, under, an endangered species can recover from only a few remaining individuals. You have to have that uh, critical mass of population. Alternatively, uh, the probability of survival was also large if people arrived in smaller successive waves, averaging at least 130 people every 70 or so years over the course of about 700 years. But uh, the scientists are thinking that that 1,300 people is the more likely of the two options. And uh, the data actually suggested that the peopling of Sahul uh, could not have been an accident or a random event. It must have been a planned, organised maritime migration, which is uh, quite similar results to findings from several other studies uh, that also suggest this number of people, that 1,300 people, is required to populate a new environment successfully, especially as people spread out from Africa and arrived in new regions all around the world. 
The overall uh, implications of these results are pretty fascinating. Uh, they do confirm that the first ancestors of Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander and Melanesian peoples to arrive in Zahul uh, did possess uh, some sort of technical knowledge, pretty sophisticated technological knowledge, in fact, because they were building watercraft to get themselves here. They were able to plan, navigate and uh, make the complicated open ocean voyage uh, to transport large numbers of people toward targeted destinations. The results also suggest they did this by making many directed voyages, potentially over centuries, providing the beginnings of the complex, interconnected Indigenous societies that we see across the continent today. These findings are a testament to the remarkable sophistication and adaptation of the first maritime arrivals in Sahul tens of thousands of years ago. So it's quite amazing to think about our own history from that as a nation with uh, people arriving, uh, you know, 50,000 years ago, this mass migration of 1,300 people to become uh, the gigantic indigenous population that we did have in this country for tens of thousands of years, really colonising this this whole whole place indeed, many different uh, indigenous nations that covered our lands. Quite amazing, just starting from 1,300 people. And uh, this actually reminded me of a uh, story that I uh, talked about about a year ago now of uh, some new history that's pushing back uh, Indigenous history across Australia. And so that mass migration was based on calculations. It didn't necessarily set a specific time that that had to have happened, uh, but it did kind of show that it had to happen in the numbers of 1,300. But uh, some research back in 2017 uh, with some new excavations around uh, Kakadu National Park actually showed that 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 50,000 year ago, uh, which is the generally accepted uh, time frame that our Indigenous population arrived, uh, that 50,000 years ago could actually probably be pushed back even further to almost 65,000 years ago uh, thanks to the excavations of a rock shelter near Kakadu and uh, this shelter called uh, Majabebe uh, was home to the earliest evidence of humans in Australia and uh, it was already accepted that that was the case but uh, dating sediments at the site confirms it was actually well, it's actually one of the most significant cultural and archaeological sites in the world confirming uh, that this is an incredibly important region not only in Australia but on the world stage uh, so this rock shelter 300 kilometres east of Darwin in Marah country uh, is at the base of the Arnhem Land escarpment on a sandy plain and the discoveries are pretty amazing in there. It's uh, known for its rich art gallery of images depicting events right up to the early contact with Europeans, including images of guns, wagons and ships on the back wall. And uh, this exploration of the site uh, that's been done is uh, dating uh, things even further back finding things like axes, grindstones, the production of ochre to produce art, goes all the way back. Now, this research was done uh, in conjunction with the traditional owners, uh, which is a really important part of exploring these uh, this Aboriginal heritage of Australia and what's going on there. And, uh, uh, you know, Mirar traditional owners uh, were involved and they'd been passing on knowledge from the site uh, onto the next generations for many years and uh, trying to show all the... the the generations of what the stories are there. Uh, 
and you know these traditional owners want to make sure the site's protected. Um, and uh, many non-Indigenous people ha- have come through, uh, digging around, cleaning up the trees and excavation of the site. Um, but uh, what's been happening with uh, this exploration back in t- 2017 was they've been working with the local uh, Mara people and the uh, Gunjemi uh, Aboriginal Corporation to uh, to excavate the site and, and, and give them the opportunity to stop it or... Um, uh, control all the artefacts that are found on the site and what's going on. Basically, just ensuring the Marae people had control of the excavation. You know, these are the conditions on which our country can be entered. And when issues arose, the researchers would actually down tools quickly and uh, call the Aboriginal corporation, speaking to the traditional owners, uh, and get them out there and looking directly. And so it's a really strong agreement. Uh, Aboriginal involvement, Aboriginal permission, Aboriginal rights over the excavation uh, have helped them uh, in this endeavour. And uh, what they're finding is... um, uh, that they're able to do, do this study and really uncover where this stuff came from. When it was first excavated nearly 30 years ago, it was thought that the uh, site was between fifty and 60,000 years old. Uh, but these dates had been disputed by some archaeologists. And so to settle the dispute, uh, Dr Clarkson and uh, some of his colleagues uh, returned to the site in 2012 and 2015 armed with more sophisticated technology and techniques. And they uncovered artefacts in three bands of sediment corresponding to different ages. The lowest uh, band was about 2.6 metres below the ground. And this layer contained evidence of a fireplace and thousands of artefacts. And along with an axe, uh, archaeologists found the oldest known grinding stone in Australia, as well as stone points that might have been used as spear tips or ochre crayons. And early paints were recovered from the site as well, too, with the world's oldest known use of reflective minerals such as mica. So a huge richness to the uh, samples that are found there. But uh, how did they know that the lower layers were around 65,000 years old? Well, to make sure the dates were correct, they sent four samples to the University of Adelaide for independent testing. And uh, the results were the same. They used radiocarbon dating and a technique called luminescence dating, which can tell when single grains of sand were last exposed to sunlight to determine the age of the sediment. And so they got that same result, 65,000 years, plus or minus 5,000 years. And so it was a blind study done at the University of Adelaide. So it really confirmed that these results that they're getting are accurate. So it's a huge discovery there because it really does help to tell that story of the Indigenous population's migration from Africa through the north there into our country. It is amazing the way we've come through. And that uh, and it just shows the level of sophistication that they had with the technology and other bits and pieces that were found through that uh, there, it really does show an advanced society that uh, made that mass migration through to us and continued to thrive in our country as they came over. Well, it's time for a shorter break now. And uh, uh, speaking, we were speaking of grindstones and axes and that sort of thing. And oh, look, I'm going to take any segue I can get on this show. Uh, so let's have a little bit of uh, music around that uh, topic and uh, grind the knife, make it nice and sharp. This is Robbie Williams with uh, his cover of Mac the Knife. That 
that's a song for a Sunday morning. The time is 11.20 here on 2XXFM. You're listening to Broderick here on Fuzzy Logic and we are exploring the world of science with you. And uh, before the break, we were talking about human mass migration into Australia. And... Uh, I thought uh, we'd continue on the Australian theme and uh, talk about uh, the animal population in Australia and a specific population of killer whales and uh, some studies that have come out to show how scientists are working out whether these killer whales are Australian or not. Well, they're listening to the whale's accent. That's right. The whales are popping up and saying, G'day, mate. And the researchers have decided that uh, this is a particularly Australian accent and that's how they can identify it. Now, they're looking at the killer whale population in the WA hotspot uh, down in the Bremer subbasin, which is 70 kilometres offshore between Esperance and Albany. So it's down in that uh, southern WA region across the other side of the bite there from where we are. And uh, this research is coming out of Curtin University and Beck Wellard, a marine biologist over there, has been supervising the research project. And she's also, uh, she's been recording the killer whales there and also returned recently from Antarctica where the same sort of acoustic research yielded subtle differences to the whales that congregate in WA every summer. So basically they've got an Australian accent is what she said. They're slightly different to other killer whale call repertoires from around the world. And so while the recordings weren't able to hear that uh, g'day mate specifically or reveal what the whales were saying, they could find the differences in the visual representation of the sound waves recorded. So what the researchers are looking at well, they can only look at different types of calls in the context of the whale behaviour. Uh, so they can look at the calls and try and relate it to what they're doing. But uh, to understand the calls at the moment is a bit beyond the researcher's scope. Uh, but they've been cataloguing uh, more than 150 individual whales through a photo catalogue from the Bremer population. And this population appears to be growing by 3 to 4% a year. Killer whales' populations in the Northern Hemisphere have been studied for 40 or 50 years, but the Southern Hemisphere has only been looked at in the last 10 years or so. So to get an understanding of the health of the population, researchers really do need to continue monitoring them. Now, the Bremer Basin Whale Study is being helped by citizen scientists who are actually paying $385 for a day to see the whales as part of a budding ecotourism industry. Uh, First whaleboat app operator in the area was there five years ago and, and they've got marine biologists on their vessel for the entire summer season. And so the uh, whaleboat operator there with the tourists actually encourages the tourists on his daily expeditions to take photographs and contribute them to the research catalogue, which is beginning to reveal family groups among that orca population. Now, look, it's a long way offshore. As I said, that Bremer Basin is 70 kilometres offshore and there's big ocean conditions out there on a regular basis and it's pretty costly to run a vessel in that way, according um, to the whaleboat operator. So people supporting the product um, and uh, getting out there as tourists help support the science as well. Uh, so it's quite amazing uh, what can be done there. Now, a local filmmaker as well has also been uh, working with the Bremer whale population while, and discovered them while working as a deckhand for Spanish scientists surveying the southern bluefin tuna populations and uh, actually documented the story in a documentary called Search for the Ocean's Super Predator, which uh, was back on ABC TV in 2013. 
Now, there's an abundant food chain in that Bremer area there, and uh, they believe it might be because of the methane hydrate that seeps out of the base of deep undersea canyons. And uh, this was revealed in a paper that uh, this uh, filmmaker Dave Riggs co-authored for an international gas industry conference and found a direct link between the seeps and gas and oil deposits. And uh, so they're quite worried that the environment could be damaged by oil or gas extraction because uh, seismic surveys have identified 37 canyons in WA's Southern Ocean and four within the Bremer Basin that have fuel in or near them. So there's a huge uh, uh, cross-section of life down here, uh, which has led to this aggregation of killer whales around those four canyons with the uh, the fuel in or near them, uh, whereas the other canyons don't seem to have uh, that uh, population boom there for the killer whales so there's something about that that's driving the ecosystem there luckily currently there are no exploration plans for the bremer canyons uh, with previous oil and gas leases expired and the area is included in australia's national marine reserve network which prevents oil gas and mineral exploration in 2017, the government actually went further, expanding the National Park Zone within the Bremer Reserve to add even greater protection. But, of course, it always could still be vulnerable. So the more we can discover about this population there and work out what's going on, the better, uh, indeed. So uh, some really interesting stuff there, looking at these whale population, which, uh, with their accents, we're seeing is a pretty unique uh, whale population out in that ocean. So the Aussie whales there with their Aussie accents are uh, causing a bit of a stir. The other animal story this week that I found uh, was from the seal kingdom. And uh, while seals uh, may not be have quite the same whale song uh, that we're used to, that uh, relaxing whale song under the water, seals are a bit more of a bark. Uh, but uh, scientists have actually been teaching seals how to sing. That's right. Uh, they've been studying the vocal learning of grey seals, uh, and scientists have been teaching them, trying to teach them how to mimic human speech and even music, such as uh, Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star or the theme to Star Wars, uh, trying to understand the evolution of their vocal learning, which is a skill that's crucial for human language development. And so they're looking at how the seals develop their vocal language as well. And they worked with three seals uh, named Zola, Janice and Gandalf. And the animals were housed at the university's marine mammal facility along with other seals and carefully monitored from birth to build a catalogue of their natural vocal repertoire. So they had their natural vocal formations and then uh, we went into the, uh, the world of trying to teach them their own new vocal repertoire. So first the seals were trained to copy sequences of sounds from their own repertoires, so just copying sounds in a certain way. Then they were trained to copy melodies in their own vocalisations, uh, a sustained call with changing pitch and varying numbers of repetitions. And once they had an 80% accuracy rate at this task, the animals were progressed to learning new vocalisations, human-like vowel sounds uh, by changing uh, Formants, which is a prominent frequency band used in human speech throughout which in, uh, information is conveyed. It actually took them hundreds of trials to teach a seal what they wanted to, to do, but once they get the idea, they can copy a new sound pretty well at first attempt. Look, I can talk about it all I want, but let's have a listen to this uh, Grey Seal compilation here. I'm going to switch the mic on, and uh, hopefully we should be able to hear this. 
It's just uh, loading up now this Grey Seals compilation here. So that uh, first bit was the tune being played for the seal, and then that was the seal repeating it. And that'll continue throughout this clip. Let's listen to some more. That was Star Wars, if you couldn't tell. So there's the example. That's the seal there, and it's just uh, decided I'm done, flips back in the water. So there's the example. Seals are trying so hard in these clips. They're gorgeous. And uh, they kind of mimic the tune and then they're like, yep, I'm done and head back in the water. Let's have a listen to a little bit more. That's right. They get the fish reward uh, for doing very well there with their uh, ability to sing. It's quite amazing, really. And uh, so, you know, it's uh, interesting to study these marine animals. Other seals have been uh, known to mimic human-like vocalisations before, but no one previously had actually studied exactly how they talk. And as it turns out, seals use the similar structures in the larynx to make human sounds as we humans do ourselves. Um, it was amazing to see how well the seals copied the model sounds, according to the scientists, and they weren't perfect, but given that these are not typical seal sounds, it was pretty impressive. And uh, the study really demonstrates how flexible seal vocalisations are and, uh, and amazing work from there. Other marine animals have also been taught to speak like a human, including orcas and a beluga whale, uh, who could actually sing a really well-defined song. But the, the fact that seals use that same... Uh, structure in their larynx as the humans means that they could be a good way to study how humans speak too. Uh, Non-human primates actually have very limited abilities in this domain. So finding other mammals uh, that use their vocal tract in the same way as us to modify sounds can help inform uh, us around how human vocal skills are influenced by genetics and learning and can ultimately help develop new methods to study speech disorders. So I find that quite amazing that uh, the best analogue for a uh, human uh, speech pattern is the seal. Uh, not not the primates there, which is an interesting one indeed. All right, folks, uh, let's have a short uh, bit of music now. Um, I'm going to come back and talk about ancient drinks and some of the news behind that and the new research. So I thought I'd uh, find this song from Vampire Weekend about a, an old-style drink called horchata. Uh, this is, yeah, horchata by Vampire Weekend. And that was Horchata by Vampire Weekend. What's Horchata? Uh, it's a uh, plant-based milk drink uh, that uh, is uh, from the, the, the Spanish there and uh, it's 
comes from the Latin term hordeata, which uh, in turn comes from hordeum, meaning barley. And it's the term related to a Mediterranean tradition of grain-based beverages. Uh, so the Valentin or Chufa Horchata is made with dried and sweetened tiger nuts. And uh, this is uh, officially called Horchata de Chufa, or in West African countries such as Nigeria and Mali, it's called Kunu Aya. And uh, it spread to Hispania with the Muslim conquest by 1000 AD. So a very ancient drink indeed. And I thought it was a good lead-in as uh, we jump into the next article. Excuse me, the next article in which we look at uh, ancient drinking habits and uh, not so much from that region of the world, but uh, looking at the early Celts who had their very own twist really on uh, getting drunk or having a good drink and uh, they were looking at uh, a range of uh, things and this has uh, been discovered recently from a range of drinking vessels found in what is now France. Uh, So what they were looking at, uh, well, they uh, had some interesting customs indeed. Uh, They looked, studied the drinking vessels and uh, for these people and it suggests that uh, they used both imported and locally made drinking vessels to drink Greek wine and local beer. And uh, while beer was drunk by everyone, warriors drank millet beer while the elites drank ale made from barley or wheat. So the elites tended to be the main ones drinking wine too, but evidence suggests craftspeople used wine for cooking. Uh, So this is research coming out of the Max Planck Institute for the Science of Human History. Now, previously, archaeologists had long assumed that the early Celts who lived in Europe more than 2,000 years ago imported Mediterranean wine and ceramics to imitate the Greeks. But the early Celts had their own drinking customs too. The Greeks, who thought beer was really lowbrow, would have been aghast to discover, as this research had, the early Celts drank their beer out of fancy ceramic vessels from Greece. And while the Greek tradition of wine, sodden feasting was uh, very blokey, uh, previous researchers found early Celtic women had social power and drank in the open with men. How dare they, women drinking with men, indeed. Uh, very cool stuff. Uh, so how did the scientists figure it out? Well, they chemically analysed organic residues left on 99 ceramic fragments dating back to about 500 BC. And these were collected at uh, the ancient vimont la fortified settlement or hill fort in Burgundy, in the Burgundy region of France. They analysed fragments of pottery vessels from four locations at the site. Now, they matched the residue analysis with the type of vessel where it was found and uh, started to understand the social meaning given to alcohol within different parts of Celtic society. Uh, And so it uh, started to infer that cultural context around ceremonial drinking versus uh, just sitting at home drinking a beer. And what they found was the uh, fancy imported Greek pottery drinking vessels. They were concentrated on the plateau of the hill fort where the elites lived. And uh, they found that these foreign vessels held wine, but also beer spiced with resins as well. Now, local pottery was also used by the elites, but only found to contain beer residue, likely from barley or wheat beer. So uh, they only drank the beer out of the local pottery, the wine in the imported Greek pottery. Uh, Craftspeople who likely lived in the lower settlements seemed to store wine only in cooking vessels, hence that they probably only used it for cooking. 
And at the gate to the settlement where warrior guards may have drank, there were just no evidence of wine in drinking vessels. Local vessels around here only had residues of millet beer, which was, again, a different beer to that drunk by the elites. The only place where wine was found in locally made drinking vessels was outside the settlement near a religious site. So they think that wine at this site may have been given as a religious offering. So it's a, an interesting thought uh, that uh, that they were there um, and uh, some interesting stuff indeed around the way they engaged in it um, the early Celts, uh, who were they? Well, they were a group that lived in what's now Germany, France and Switzerland around 500 BC. And in that society, women held more political power than they did in many other Bronze Age European societies, such as the Greeks. And the early Celts were pre-literate, so they relied on their oral tradition to pass on information. And this resulted in modern scientists... Uh, using the views and observations of other Bronze Age literate societies, such as the Greeks. So our current society does kind of privilege documents over any other source of evidence, and so that uh, oral history can often uh, be uh, put by the wayside, and, and we give a lot of weight in uh, the, the written history instead. Uh, but, of course, the written history comes from Greek authors, you know, such as Herodotus or Strabo, um, and they end up being given too much weight in modern research. And these, these people weren't ethnographers or uh, scientists or historians in the way we define these terms. They were just writers. Uh, so... Quite interesting indeed. So ancient Greek men, uh, the elite, drank wine at symposiums, and these gatherings barred respectable women. Uh, but if Celtic elites were attempting to mimic the Greeks, they would have spurned beer and excluded women from feasts, and this was completely the opposite. So they really didn't inherit that part of the culture there. Celtic women had the power uh, to hold most representative feasts, and the drinking paraphernalia found at women's grave sites certainly suggests they were serious drinkers indeed. One of the largest bronze vessels used for mixing wine, which was 1.6 metres high, was found in an elaborate woman's grave at the same site, bringing home the point that women and wine went together in the Celtic society. There you go. Celtic elite were certainly keen on drinking wine from Greek pottery like the Greeks, but only sometimes, and they seem to have enjoyed their local beers from the Greek vessels as well, possibly ignoring all the Greek... Uh, uh, learnings behind that too and so the big question does come though we've, we've talked a lot about wine but for this beer what did it taste like well early Celts actually had a beer very similar to what we have now but uh, a lot of the beer was low in alcohol and, and essentially used for daily hydration as the alcohol would have killed bacteria present in the water so isn't that interesting that uh, the best way to get your uh, water supply was to drink low-alcohol beer? I don't know that we recommend that now, but in the case where water purification was a little more difficult, it does make it a lot easier. Uh, and But uh, it's also imagined that the early Celts were probably intelligent enough to brew different kinds of beer uh, because we know that they did use different kinds of grain. Uh, so they probably produced different types of beer, some for getting uh, drunk or, you know, having a party with and the others just for a daily drink. Uh, the wine, we're not sure how the Celts were using that and whether they were spicing it up or watering it down because uh, wine didn't have that elegant taste that we're used to now, but it did 
basically served the purpose of making you drunk. Uh, and it begs the question, you know, how many of us are like the Celts or the Greeks and just willing to drink bad-tasting alcohol in order to get drunk? I don't know that I can recommend it, but it is interesting to look at uh, the society and how it was back then compared to how it is now. All right, I'm going to play one last bit of music and uh, we'll come back with our final bit of science news. I'm going to end on a bad note, folks. I don't like doing it, but uh, it's a bit of bad news around, uh, you know, climate change, plastic pollution, all those sorts of things, uh, which are very difficult indeed. But, uh, but important that we talk about them here on the radio, here on Fuzzy Logic. Ben Folds 5 there with Underground. You're listening to Fuzzy Logic here, your science on a Sunday, right here on 2XFM 98.3 on the dial. This is Canberra's community radio station, uh, people-powered radio. We're a volunteer-based, not-for-profit radio station in your community, and we are dependent on the support of listeners. So I'd encourage you to support 2XFM by subscribing, donating, sponsoring, or volunteering. In fact, we've got a big donation drive on at the moment, so if you want to donate, then uh, head to our website 2xxfm.org.au and uh, you can find out all the details for donating there because it's only with uh, your support that we can continue to make a community radio like this. My name is Broderick Matthews and it's great to be here today to share the world of science with you folks and uh, today I'm going to finish off with a little bit of uh, important news uh, indeed but uh, it's uh, very... uh, relevant, I think, to making sure that uh, we have a better world to live in. And so there are a couple of stories around our changing environment and that side of things. And the first is uh, comes to us from uh, the Worldwide Fund for Nature, WWF, and uh, some research out of the University of Newcastle here in Australia, which found that the global average of microplastic inject- ingestion could be as high as five grams a week per person, which is the equivalent of eating a teaspoon of plastic or a credit card every single week. Now, uh, this collated the findings of 50 international research papers in an attempt to provide an accurate calculation of plastic ingestion rates. And based on conservative assumptions, uh, people are basically consuming about 2,000 tiny pieces of plastic a week. Now, we're talking about microplastics here. So bits that are less than one millimetre in size, which are the most commonly ingested contaminants. And water, both bottled and tap water, is the largest single source of plastic ingestion. In water, it's mostly the fibres, which could come from industrial activities. It's released with other gases and chemicals, and uh, this can then ultimately sink into the freshwater bodies, and that gets into the drinking water. There aren't any filtration systems for bottled water that can filter out those sub-micron phase particles. They're tiny bits and pieces. And uh, the only uh, water source really that's mostly free of plastics is uh, the bottled water that comes from groundwater sources. Uh, But, uh, yeah, it's, it's pretty amazing that we can get so much plastic through this water. Now, if consumable products studied, things that we eat, those with the highest plastic levels included shellfish, beer, and salt. Uh, 
microplastics are really that emerging contaminant in many, many things. And the, the thing we don't know is what's the real impact? And this needs to be explored. You know, what's happening? We're ingesting about five grams of plastic per week. What does that mean inside our bodies? What's going on inside us? Is it toxic or is it inert? Um, it's... Uh, an amazing uh, piece of study. And this findings, uh, according to WWF, should serve as a wake-up call to governments because not only are plastics polluting our oceans and waterways, killing marine life, it's in us and we can't escape consuming it. Uh, we need some urgent action at government, uh, business and consumer levels uh, to target this plastic pollution uh, indeed. So we need to take some action there. You know, since 2000, the world since the year 2000, the world has produced as much plastic as all the preceding years combined. A third of which has leaked into nature. 104 million metric tons of plastic could be released into the environment by 2030 unless we take some drastic action. Places like Canada are announcing it's moving to ban single-use plastic items by as early as 2021, following the EU's decision in March to ban plastic items such as plastic cutlery, cotton buds, straws and stirrers. And I know here in Australia we have uh, cities that are slowly uh, moving towards that. It's been talked about in Canberra, it's been talked about in Adelaide, it's been talked about in various councils across the country. We really do need to make that transition to a plastic-free society uh, because it, it's just everywhere otherwise and so it's important that we do start to look at um, how we might reduce that plastic use and uh, there's plenty of places here around Canberra that are doing that you've got Frankie's at Ford not giving away any takeaway cups anymore uh, you've got my uh, my local coffee shop two before ten in Aranda who are now uh, not only serving you in um your own coffee cups but if you want to buy beans off them you can take in your own container and fill that up instead of buying the uh, the bags that they come in themselves so there's lots of different ways that uh, everyone is working towards cutting down on plastic and it's going to take action from everyone to reduce this use but um, to change it entirely we really need that government action there to reduce and stop single-use plastics and speaking of taking action, the other time that we have to take action is around our temperatures. You know, our last summer in Australia was the hottest on record, and we can expect that record-breaking weather to continue for at least the next 20 years. Uh, that's according to new climate change research. Uh, regardless of action now on climate change, monthly temperature records are going to continue to be smashed for the next two decades. But what happens beyond then is something we can have an effect on. Immediate action to drastically reduce emissions worldwide would rein in the temperature record-breaking from around 2040, according to a study published in Nature Climate Change Today. But uh, the rate of record smashing will continue to rise throughout the 21st century if emissions keep increasing at the current rate. There's two different futures that are on offer here. We really need to make sure we go down the right path. Um, there's uh, been reports of fire agencies across the country struggling to manage the unprecedented bushfires in the last summer. And this uh, led uh, Scott Power from the Bureau of Meteorology to undertake a study looking at how are we going to face these conditions in the future. So Dr Power used 22 climate models to project how often we're going to break temperature records in the next century under both high and low emission scenarios. So business as usual is high and low is if we can reduce it ourselves. And he found that uh, 
we're still going to smash and set records and it's going to be far more frequently if global greenhouse emissions continue to rise the way they have been. Uh, 60% of the world will set at least one new monthly temperature record every year by the end of the century if we continue with business as usual. However, if we do move to low emissions, which aims to limit warming to 2 degrees Celsius as per the Paris Agreement, the likelihood of setting high monthly temperature records drops markedly from around 2040 uh, and uh, moves to as low as 10% uh, of the world. So rather than 60% of the world, just 10% of the world setting those records by the end of the century. So reducing global emissions is going to prevent the rate of temperature record setting and smashing from increasing all the way through to the end of the century. But those benefits, we won't actually see them kick in for another 20 years or so. So it's the action now to save us later. And while large emissions reductions are key to avoiding the smashing of records all the way to the year 2100, we also have to think about adapting in areas such as fire management and and those sorts of areas to make sure that we can cope with the regular occurrence of these extreme temperatures over the next two decades. Uh, We're not going to see that reduction in temperatures anytime soon. These records are going to continue to be set in Australia. And... uh, the margins that these records are broken by are going to increase. Uh, So even if we do reduce our emissions tomorrow, we're still going to take some time to see those effects. So we do have to adapt as a society, as a population. Now, the impact of climate change and record temperatures, according to this study, will continue to be strongest in the tropics. Uh, The rate at which people will experience the uh, unprecedented conditions is higher up there and uh, it's much uh, it's much more in developing countries than in developed countries too so the benefits of cutting emissions sooner are even bigger for developing countries as well so you can see it's happen- it's going to have an effect for all of us especially on those developing countries that really can't cope with these big changes so, look, it, it, again, it's a chance for action. The action that we do take here is really going to have an effect. We may not see it immediately, but uh, I don't know about you, but I plan on being around in 40 years' time, and I certainly know that I'll have uh, family, relatives, young children, the next generation who are going to be around in 40 years' time. So we really do need to take that action now and compel our governments, compel Uh, our general population to take some action on climate change to stop this uh, increase happening as we move into the future. So there's a big call to action there for you folks right here on Fuzzy Logic because I think it's so important that we uh, start to look at how we can actually make the change in the world. It's making those positive changes. It's reducing the plastic, reducing our energy use and uh, making our way to more renewable sources of energy that are going to have huge effects on our planet, huge effects on our daily lives and to just make this world a better place to live. Well, that just about wraps it up today here on Fuzzy Logic. Uh, my name's Broderick, and it's been a pleasure to have you with us. If you enjoyed today's show, make sure you do subscribe to our podcast, Fuzzy Logic on 2xx.podbean.com. I'll be uploading there. I've got a little backlog at the moment. I do apologise, listeners, but I'll try and get through to those so we can have some old episodes up there for you, and you can listen to them there. Or you can catch us on Facebook and Twitter at Fuzzy Logic SciShow. Uh, but uh, we're always here every Sunday at 11 am here on 2XXFM for Fuzzy Logic, your science on a Sunday.